90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Just cruising through the middle of the semester. Yeah. Living so the dream. So la- last week you were going to be giving a test. Did you get that done? I mean, I gave it, John, but I haven't graded it yet. <laughs> <laughs> Every year I tell students, I said, you know, on my reviews, what you're going to want to write is needs to return papers faster. And what I'm going to say is tough luck, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought I would love grading papers. Like when I was little in my stocking would be like little like receipt books and red pens and all this. I'm like, I love this stuff. It's the worst. I know I've complained about it before, but it's truly the worst. Yeah. It's, it's just like doing, you know, small business accounting for me. Like oh, it yeah. sounds like, mm-hmm. Oh, that won't be too hard until you do it. And then it's terrible. Yeah, it's the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. Yep. I even voted to not let TAs grade intro test because they already have too much work to do, and I'm regretting that vote. <laughs> <laughs> regretting it so hard. And then I gave two tests since I was gone for GSA, and so, yeah, they're all, all 90 of them are just sitting there. That's not true. I, I did one whole class, so 30 of them are gone, so I've got 60 more to go. Uh, Third of the way there. Uh, so depressing. I have to finish grading them tomorrow morning, too. So it's not like I can even drink because I have to, you know, work the rest of the day. So <laughs> right. I'll get that done while we're recording tonight. <laughs> yeah. How's it going with you? Have you? Been, where were you this week? Were you like in, you know, Quebec or Tibet or something? Or were you actually, do you even remember where you live? <laughs> yeah, so I was home. Do you know where that is? (laughs) Yes, and I'll be home for the next few. Nice. Uh, Nice. Two, I think. You had a couple of milestones to celebrate, too. Your wedding anniversary and your birthday. Yay. Yeah. Yeah, so wedding anniversary the day before birthday. Excellent. Yeah, so we had a little party for that. And then uh, Monday morning, I was greeted by a huge box of parts needed to finish up a contract that has to ship, like, now because it's international air to get uh to antarctica in time for the field season oh man that's a scary deadline so it's been all hands on deck uh not made easier by minor technical problems so it's been an adventurous week uh i ended up writing a entire a designing, building, and writing an entire test stand suite in about six hours this week <laughs> to test these instruments, which I'm actually pretty proud of. It's a nice little interface. You scan the serial number on the instrument, and you tell it what stage of production it is. You plug it in. It automates the calibration signal, which is a dropping ball bearing, records the data, shows you the graph so you can see if it passes or fails, and writes it out to a file. Wow. See, kids, this is why coding is important. Yeah, so I mean, this would have taken forever manually, but Just to now sit there it's going it, to yeah. be a lot faster. And I can give my customer a report and say, you know, this is the, the pre-epoxied test. This is the post-epoxied test. This is it compared to a reference instrument. So we know this is a good instrument when I shipped it. When I shipped it. 
<laughs> that's awesome that's the kind of you have to qualify things like that for yes. field instruments because people are like it doesn't work and they send you a picture and you're like, well who backed over it six times the snowmobile why is that seal chewing on it right <laughs> all things that have been said in with regards to scientific instruments <laughs> Cows. Cows are the worst. Oh, cows and seismic, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just terrible. Just terrible. Sometimes we get bees crawling into our paleomagnetic holes if we drill like in the desert or something because we're drilling with water. Mm-hmm. That's what happens to us. <laughs> I, I remember a few years ago, a National Weather Service radar had gone down. <laughs> And the service note being something like, couldn't access service area, rattlesnakes. <laughs> Rattlesnake <laughs> in the dome. I remember that yeah. one. That was good. <laughs> Rattlesnake in the dome. Oh, I feel like that's a t-shirt. <laughs> we know our radar here, uh, KINX over in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This week, they took the dome off, took the dish off, replaced the pedestal and put it all back together in one day. That is super impressive. I will say I did need that radar, but <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, when we got, um, I got about five inches of rain in 36 hours with severe flooding. I don't mm-hmm. know about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it rained here a little bit, but um, we were attending the Oklahoma Biological Survey has a thing called the Bio Blitz, which was really cool. It's sort of a biological counting festival. Um, and they held it outside of Wagner, so kind of close to you guys. Um, and oh, we're, yeah. We were camping, and so I needed to know if it was going to be stormy because it was my, my little two-year-old's first time camping. She was so angry that we left. Every night when I put her to bed, she goes, I sleep in a tent tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a good time. So I was like, man, why is this radar down? I need to know. But we bailed just in case because, well storms are no or rain is no big deal i don't need to deal with two kids and lightning in a tent so we hightailed it yeah i mean between uh here in my parents house there was no passable road for a while yeah yeah it was over a the weekend a gully washer if you will right mm-hmm. yeah it, it made all of the uh the cricks rise ha. to tie into last week's show. <laughs> and how often does this happen to tie into this week's show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about climate. And I've had several email questions about climate recently. But specifically, you want to talk about how plate tectonics can influence climate. Right. So we talk about plate tectonics so much on here, right? I feel like I talk about it constantly in class just because it's this huge big picture thing that kind of runs all of the processes on earth and it's not just the processes associated with geology but it actually has a pretty big effect on climate too so i thought we would sort of talk about the three main sort of interfaces between plate tectonics and climate because it's kind of a big deal right and i mean the first thing that comes to mind is plate tectonics is what is responsible for how much land there is and where it is. Right. And so, you know, you make crust at divergent boundaries, you get rid of crust at convergent boundaries, but actually where on earth, literally, is that crust does a lot for climate. And, I mean, the easiest one to think about is, they're sitting here 
we're rotating. You know, we've done a whole show on orbital parameters, but um, how much solar radiation you get is a big deal. And where you're getting it, whether you're on land or sea, makes a big difference. Right, because these two things have very different behaviors in terms of how much of that energy they hold on to and store, how much is absorbed, and how much is reflected back out into space, and how that affects the total energy balance for the whole planet. Right, exactly. Um, Hopefully my class isn't listening, or hopefully they are. I don't know. We have a test next week, and some of the questions might be in this podcast. Teehee. So, right. <laughs> um, right. So, land has uh, a higher albedo and a bigger thermal inertia than um, water does. And what's on the land, vegetation or ice, makes a big difference because ice could give you, you know, an albedo of almost one. So, everything's being reflected. So, how the land and the ocean soak in that solar radiation is a big deal. We talked about this when you talked about monsoons and sea breezes, right? Right. Says. So, and so the, the higher albedo is the more reflective. Mm-hmm. The, the thermal inertia, though, I would say it's lower, right? Because land temperature changes more rapidly Correct. than ocean temperature. So it's actually less thermal inertia. Oh, oh, wait a minute. So now I had to look this up because this is a thing like viscosity. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because, you know, viscosity is the resistance to flow. And in my mind, it always took me, it, it doesn't anymore, but it took me a long time to figure out, you know, so high viscosity is high resistance to flow. And I think thermal inertia, I looked it up, the definition was um, rapid changes. I'm trying to look it up again here. Oh, the degree of slowness with which the temperature of the body approaches that of its surroundings. Right. So think about thermal inertia like real inertia. Okay. So a dump truck, it takes a long time for it to change speed. Low thermal inertia means a low degree of slowness, which would mean fast changes. Right. You're right. Okay. Right. I had to to work that out in my head. This is how we So the dump everybody. truck is going to take a long time to speed up or slow down because right. it has a lot of inertia. It's got a big yes. inertia. Yep, so exactly. the dump truck's the ocean, and right. the, uh, the little Pinto <laughs> oh, man. Has, has a small amount of inertia. It's easy to speed up or slow down. <laughs> and so that would be like the land. It's easy for it to change temperature compared Great. to the ocean. There you go. All right. I've adjusted this in the notes and in my head and hopefully in my PowerPoint for tomorrow. <laughs> So land is the pinto, ocean is the dump truck. In land terms of is energy. the pinto, and ocean is the dump truck, and that's why we have ice ages, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, exactly. So when we talked about monsoons and sea breezes, it has to do with land takes is highly reactive, essentially, to the um, solar radiation that it's getting. Okay, um, so the albedo is a big deal because you know. You're taking in heat or you're reflecting it back out into space. Okay, so you're either giving it back, externalizing it, or keeping it within the environment. So where your land is is highly affected by the tilt of the Earth, which makes Right, sense. which is super important. So at the poles, we get a lot less insulation or incoming solar radiation mm-hmm. uh, when- compared to at the equator. So... 
the distribution of mass matters more towards the equator than it does towards the poles. Right. Exactly. At least for this part of all of this big equation. <laughs> um, right. Right. So you got a lot of land at the equator. You're taking in a lot of solar radiation, and it's getting absorbed there and adding heat to the system. Okay, great. But not as much as if you had a lot of water. Right. So right. Your, your amount of land, which is dictated by plate tectonics, obviously that doesn't change a ton, but it has over the history of the Earth, right? And then where it's at in terms of albedo. And where it's at is another thing, too. So we just said if you got all this land at the poles, it's not taking in that much solar radiation. Um, but where's your land at? Because if your land is at the poles you get into this thing called the polar position hypothesis. Because when we talk about climate, basically, you know, are we hot or are we cold? Are we in an ice house, which means you can have ice ages where ice grows and retreats, large bodies of ice, or you're in a hot house where you don't have ice except maybe at high elevations. That's kind of the, the large scale, what is our climate doing? And so if you've got land at the poles, we've got this thing called the polar position hypothesis, which says that you have a higher probability of growing ice sheets if you have land there rather than water. Which is strange because water's absorbing lots of solar radiation. Mm -hmm. So to me, that makes things hotter. Mm -hmm. So why do we have a higher probability of ice? So... Uh... It's easier to grow continental ice than it is ice in the ocean. That's why. Okay. So it is for the reason you just said, but just not the way you're thinking about it. Okay, so, so I guess land at the poles versus water at the poles, it's easier to make the ice on the land at the pole. Exactly. So it's And even, there's less incoming solar radiation there, so it's colder. Right. Yeah. So even more fundamental than you were thinking. Yeah. So you got this ice or you've got this land, and if you want to big, grow a big ice sheet, it's easier to grow it on the land, and especially when you're at the poles, you're not getting the incoming solar radiation. So, But um, we talked about this in uh, class today, and I think this is interesting because it's something that people don't get about forecasts. So the common misnomer that I always heard, you know, if it's a 50% chance of rain, some, some people think that means 50% of the area is going to get rain, which is not what that means. <laughs> Right. Not at all. No, no. It's basically like, given these certain set of circumstances, half the time you get rain, half the time you don't. That's what it is. Um, and so the polar position hypothesis, I guess this was probably popular for a while, but when we take a look at it in terms of big ice sheets present during geologic time, it doesn't always coincide with that. So back in the Ordovician, we had big ice sheets. Continents were in polar position. Okay, great. Polar position hypothesis, check. Okay, and then <laughs> uh, a little bit earlier on, Ordovician, Devonian, no ice sheets present. Yes, we have continents in polar position. Okay, so that doesn't support our hypothesis. And we can go through the different ice house climates, and it's about 50-50. And so this is, to me, in my mind, this polar position hypothesis falls into... When we do those long-range forecasts, like weeks or months, and you look at this picture of the U.S., and you'll see these things that are like, it's a B, an A, or an E, 
and it's like temperature. If everything's colored blue and you say it's got an A on it, what that means is you have, it's above average chances. So you have above average chances that it's going to be colder. That doesn't mean it's going to be colder. <laughs> it just means it's highly probable it will be colder than normal. And so to me, right. that's what this means is that land at the poles, highly probable you could grow an ice sheet. Doesn't mean you're going to, but if you are, you've got a much better chance if you've got land at the poles. Right. So 60% of the time it works every time. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Okay. <laughs> but the, the opposite of that is, okay, you're land at the equator. We already talked about that in terms of albedo, but if you're going to look at the Hadley circulation cells, right, you look at that on a large scale, where are you getting the most ascending air and therefore, and also the most moisture? That comes together where at on the globe? At the equator. Exactly. So, consequently... A lot of the land at the equator is like this awesome tropical rainforest, right? What that right. awesome tropical rainforest does is increases weathering. Okay. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So you weather stuff chemically and mechanically pretty fast when you have this sort of seasonality or at least lots of rainfall. And... We'll talk about this a little bit later, um, but what happens is if you weather silicate rocks, you wind up scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere, and it goes into, as we weather those rocks, it goes into storing CO2 as those weathered pieces of rocks go on to become more rocks as they get to the ocean. And Right, so we're putting CO2 down into the mantle which later is going to come back. Right, exactly. So if you're just worried about climate and you're talking about CO2 composition in the atmosphere, weathering takes it out. So if you have more land to weather at the equator, you're taking more CO2 out of the equation. So you're cooling the planet. Exactly. So where your land is at, you know, land at the poles, you got a higher probability of creating ice sheets, land at the equator, you're scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere. So both of those sort of point towards cooling. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. But there's more <laughs> with this amount and location of land. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we're talking about plate tectonics, right? So where our big plates are has a lot to do. And this one is one that I actually can't speak a lot about, but I know is super important and extremely hard to understand. And that is what ocean currents have to do with continental position. Yeah, so ocean currents are really important in transferring energy from the equator to the poles and trying to equalize. We're always trying to get to equilibrium. But if you stick something large to impede that flow, like hundreds of millions of tons of rock... <laughs> in the way, then the current has to either find another way around or that it's not going to get equalized and nature has to come up with another mechanism to perform that equalization. Exactly. So ocean currents do for the ocean what hurricanes do for the atmosphere. They're all fluids, right? 
and it's all trying to equalize that temperature gradient because we want it to be at that nice even keel, but that never works. Um, so ocean currents work today by this thing called the thermohaline circulation, right? So hot equatorial water travels northward, and as it goes northward, it cools, it starts to sink, the densest water is the saltiest, too, right? You can do that cool experiment with salt water and food coloring and pour them together, you know, pour it into a, a clear tub of water, and you can see that that density difference in that salt water, that food coloring water will just flow along the bottom. It's super cool. Or you, or you can float an egg on it, which will come <gasps> back later in the show. Oh, <laughs> that's a nice pre-segue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then that cold, salty water falls down to the bottom, and since it's cold, it wants to travel towards the equator, and you set up this thermohaline circulation. It takes about a 1,000 years, actually, for one drop of water to make it through from equator back to the equator, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> um, That's quite a while. Uh, yeah, it's a long time. You don't think of it like that, especially because like, the Gulf Stream is the warm current off of the eastern U.S., right and you would just think you're like man the gulf stream that's moving pretty fast right no a thousand years to get all the way back to the equator mm -hmm. wow and consequently this is why um the <laughs> this is why sort of the east coast you know you get i don't know it gets cold but it's not like terribly cold and the temperature swings and say you know baltimore washington dc real close to the coast aren't super high not like they are in the center of the country, okay? And also, this is why sort of Western Europe is relatively coolish or warmish in the winters as well. Um, and so these circulations and the temperatures associated with these ocean circulations do a lot for the climates of those areas right by them. And when you do, just like you said, John, when you do crazy stuff like, say, before North and South America were joined... And the current went straight through sort of the isthmus of Panama there. Um, it wasn't an isthmus anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, straight of Panama. Um, you disrupt that whole thermohaline circulation. And the Antarctic circulation is a big deal when it comes to this, you know, disruption by movement of continents. Yeah, and a pretty strange circulation. Yeah, because it just goes around Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is actually why we think the event that, I don't want to use the word precipitated, but I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> precipitated um, Southern Hemisphere glaciation at the start of the last um, glacial maximum, really, is that the start of the last ice age, actually. Um is that we opened up, so South America got far enough away from Antarctica that you created this circumpolar current, and so now you're not bringing warm air or warm water down to the pole. You've got this big circumpolar current, and it just sits there and spins. And so because you're not redistributing that heat and you had a lot of land at the pole, it was very easy to grow a big ice sheet rather quickly. Hmm. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, because it took northern um, hemisphere glaciation during the start of our last ice house. Um, actually came much later. Because there's, you know, there's more intricate ocean currents up there. There's not the same amount of land. So it was pretty easy to get Antarctica iced over. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, putting big masses of land in changes the fluid current on the earth in terms of water, but it's also going to change things like the atmospheric fluid flow, because not only does the land stick down uh, into what forms the ocean basins, but it also sticks up into the atmosphere, sometimes pretty high. Exactly. Um, I don't know if we've talked about, surely we've talked about orographic lift here before right oh yes <laughs> so um this is your classic like rain shadow effect or why we have all these deserts in some places is that you've got this prevailing wind direction especially if it's going over water so if you're close to an ocean and you flow across the ocean and then you suddenly get to this big mountain range your air goes up as it does that it cools expands condenses turns into rain i love this because i always draw this little angry cloud <laughs> and this is why <laughs> you want to go skiing on the western slopes of the rockies because that's where you dump all your precip and then by the time you get to the other side it's a much drier climate and in some cases an arid climate depending on your full atmospheric geographic setup right but this can even do things like change is it bare ice somewhere is it snow-covered ice is it snow that then gets scoured away by wind and you've just got rock like it can modify the albedo of areas pretty significantly as well mm -hmm. yeah it can and I mean, it's like we've got big mountain ranges today and i mean that's it albedo is a huge deal the ice albedo feedback is a massive deal because if you've got land great you got land you can have plants people whatever you cover it all up with ice okay well that happens then your albedo is close to one, depending on if you've got, you know, regular white ice. <laughs> and right. you stop taking in solar radiation. So you can't melt the ice just from the sun alone. So how do you melt the ice? How do we retreat glaciers? How do you get out of an ice age? And there's lots of talk. Um, this is probably a fun paper we'll do fairly soon, um, that several times in Earth's history, We've either been totally snow-covered, snowball earth, which we've talked about before on here, uh, or we've come close to being snow-covered and not been able to get out of it. And we have to have right. another mechanism like volcanoes to help add CO2 to get out of this. So you're exactly right. Like where mountains are can affect what that looks like and change the albedo for the better or the worse, depending on what you're trying to do. Right. And, you know, volcanoes are one of those things that we joke. It's a pretty safe answer to <laughs> anything. Oh, gravity and volcanoes, heat. Yeah, absolutely. The sun. <laughs> mm -hmm. The sun's the other one. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's so funny because as I teach more and more, like, I realize that, yeah, really, that is. Like, there's a, there's a, that's, there's a reason things are first principles. And there's a reason, you know, that those are the basics because they truly are. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we're talking about climate change and climate through Earth's history, like we're not moving our mountains right now, really. But different times in Earth's history, we've had different, you know, 
variations of continental configurations. And when we had Pangaea, so the last time we had a big supercontinent, we're moving towards another supercontinent right now. Um, but the last time we had them across the entire center was the Transpangaean mountain range. So a huge mountain range close to the equator that was all across the continent. And you better believe that it had a huge effect on the climate of Pangaea. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about a continental divide. It's a super continental divide. Ah, <laughs> but it was. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like all these things that come together in the Transpangaean Mountains, which is why so many people are obsessed with this time period. Um, because you've got, you know, this one big landmass. It really stretched, you know, almost from pole to pole. Um, but you had a ton of mountains that were at the equator. So... You're increasing weathering, but everything was actually pretty arid that time because the configuration of the landmass set up this big monsoonal circulation. Um, so you had these orographic effects due to the presence of these huge mountains. You set up monsoonal circulations. I mean, and this is happening today because of the Tibetan Plateau, this high area um, that just sits there and bakes like a brick and causes this low pressure in summer which means it's rainy in India during that time and then reverses direction. And it means it's rainy in East Africa during the winter months. Um, so yeah, so there are a lot of atmospheric effects that are just due to the presence or absence of mountains or uplifted areas. Right. Right. And then, so then <laughs> one more atmospheric thing. <laughs> Uh, and this is just it's kind of a self-explanatory thing that we sort of already talked about is like where you're getting evaporation and precipitation that matters right and i always think of this when i flew to the turks and the caicos for a field trip it was so cool going all over all the little keys in the bahamas and stuff and off of florida because you've got this huge ocean and all these tiny little islands and over all the tiny little islands were cute little clouds that were like the exact shape of the island right on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love that. That's so cool. Um, but how this affects it is, okay, you're going to evaporate a lot of stuff out of the ocean. You're going to fall in the ocean. Okay, fine. You're not changing albedo or anything. But if you're going to do, you know, a bunch of precipitation over these islands, you can start to grow you know forest change albedo that way and it just in large amounts this can matter if you're growing you know huge forests you're scrubbing the atmosphere of co2 just through photosynthesis right so all those little things where evaporation is happening and where precipitation is falling has a lot to do with atmospheric composition right and you know one I've never heard anybody use this example before. It's a very small scale example of water vapor affecting albedo strongly, mm -hmm. uh, but it's used in an engineering application, actually. Okay. So if you're going to pour a large concrete structure like a dam, mm -hmm. you have some pretty big problems. Namely, the concrete generates a ton of heat when it cures. Right. And it's curing from the outside in. Mm -hmm. and you end up generating uh, a lot of fractures in it, the whole structure can just fall apart from the thermal contraction, the stress is induced from that. Okay. Uh, so they've tried all kinds of things to like cool it, 
They've run pipes through dams when they're building them and mm. run chilled water through it. They've mixed ice with concrete. They've chilled the aggregate. They've done all kinds of stuff. Uh, but one of the most effective strategies they found out was to create a human-induced artificial fog with a bunch of misters. No kidding. As... And it increased the albedo above the concrete <gasps> pour so much that the incoming solar radiation at the surface of the concrete was a lot less, and they were able to chill it much more effectively and pour huge dams with very few cracks. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing. That's amazing. They could have also set off a volcano near it <laughs> to put aerosols in the air and do the same thing. <laughs> well, but I think that's probably next week's show. Uh, yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> that one might also be a little more difficult to do. Uh, hey, man, you get enough kids with baking soda out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see what that. Yeah, you release CO2. Okay, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll bite on the baking soda volcano idea. There you idea. go. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. That's super cool. Literally. <laughs> so it works for the climate, also works for building dams. Right. Well, which is bad for climate, but I think we've talked about that before. <laughs> it's a damn cooling trick. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I, I really think there's probably a lot more examples like that that we can use to illustrate these things to students because it's hard to it's hard to conceptualize some of these long time scale things that we're talking about, right? But everybody can think about something that occurs over days or maybe months. Right, exactly. And I think it's hard to think about weather in terms of climate, really. I used to think climate was super boring. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, anyone that... <laughs> has taught me climate and listens to this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's just an aggregate of weather. And so you have to know the weather because all those little bitty things add up. Yeah. That's exactly what climate is. It's the bookkeeping. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. So this is like a climate audit that we're doing right now. Basically. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Was there rain in Pangaea over the transcontinental mountains on October 15th? <laughs> Going to need to see those carbon receipts. <laughs> um, I don't know. Should we stop here? It seems like it's uh, getting pretty deep. I, I, I think so. So we will continue uh, later talking about things like volcanoes. But for now, I think it's time to talk about everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. You just wanted to stop talking before you got egg on your face by saying something dumb. Oh, you know, it could have been a serious injury. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> so <laughs> how did you find this paper? I don't want to tell you because then you're going to plunder my secret new stash of of fun papers. <laughs> See, because when we started, I was really bad at this fun paper thing. I'd come up with science papers that weren't necessarily that funny, but that were super cool. And you'd always come up with super awesome, funny papers. And I feel like I have a stash now and I'm real excited about it. All right. <laughs> so I'm not going to tell you, but I will let you read the title. 
Okay, so it's Here's Egg in Your Eye, a prospective study of blunt ocular trauma resulting from thrown eggs by Stuart et al. <laughs> it's like it's funny, but it's not. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say that this journal is... It's just a treasure trove. I don't know why I always find these medical ones. <laughs> but this, like, emergency medicine journal, I feel like this is super untapped. Like, we could just basically read from it every week. Right. <laughs> it might be better than BMJ. <laughs> yeah, it's got the potential. Though this paper, so... <laughs> The objective is to see if a public awareness campaign might be justified around Halloween with regard to the dangers of egg throwing. So it's also timely here. Right. Ex exactly. Look at this double punch that I that I worked up for us. Um, and so they did look at over a year period of injuries associated with thrown eggs. Which must be a much bigger deal in Liverpool than here. I know. So we were chatting about this before we started recording and um yeah once when i was i didn't understand egging like i never got it like why would you do that and so i remember i once when i was i don't know man i was probably like eight or nine i toilet papered and egged my own house because i thought that's just what you did <laughs> <laughs> and i assume you had to clean it up i got into a lot of trouble <laughs> yeah that didn't go over like i thought it did i thought it was a funny thing because everybody always talked about ha egged your house i'm like well, i'll do it to my own house <laughs> yeah so how did, how did the cleanup go on that yeah it wasn't it wasn't great it was hard we had like wood siding and rock you know so it it was gross <laughs> super gross i Bet, but you didn't get any egg in your eye, probably. I sure didn't, and this is crazy. Apparently, well, what is it? What were the the numbers? Um, I my internet is stymieing me, but it was like, and the average age was like twenty seven or something of these fourteen people who got eggs thrown in their eyeballs. Yes. Yeah, so thirteen injuries. Okay. Twenty seven point nine year old average. <laughs> uh, Twelve were men. Twelve of thirteen. I just want to point this out. Uh, nine were in the left eye. There were no both eye injuries. So girls are sitting there not doing this on Halloween, obviously. Now, and... Some of these sounded pretty bad. I mean, okay, so somebody throws an egg and it hits you in the face. Yeah, the egg's sort of the same size as your eye area. Mm -hmm. So it can go into it. Like it's not big enough that's going to just bounce off like somebody threw a cantaloupe at you. <laughs> that, um, would, that would just bounce off of you. <laughs> I'm sure there's a paper in this emergency medicine journal about that too. I'll find it. <laughs> right. But so it goes kind of into your eye socket and impacts your eye. But a couple of these injuries were eggs either thrown from moving cars or at someone yeah. in a moving car. Yeah, man. If you're throwing an egg at somebody in a moving car, number one, bravo. You've got some really good aim. <laughs> um, but, ah, and so it compares the eggs to, which, of course, because 
it's England, I guess, um, to, like, handball balls, basically, and so that they can do, like, massive orbital damage, because they're pretty heavy, and you fling them hard enough, which you can do by hand, that you can, what they call it, orbital injuries, which just makes it sound like it hurts more. Or it can result in ocular morbidity or death of the eye, loss of vision in the eye. Yeah, and so that's what happened. So one of the case studies that they sort of point out in a little bit more detail is that it got him, you know, just enough. And was this the guy that sneezed and now he's messed up for life? Oh, yeah. So um, every time he sneezed, his vision dropped to a visual acuity of 6 over 18. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was, like, just ripping open this little, not little, it was bad to begin with, but the trauma caused by the egg, and he sneezed and just ripped it open, and now it said he's at risk of getting glaucoma, like, way higher risk than he would have normally been, and then one guy didn't ever recover full eyesight. Yeah. Now, so their conclusion is that there should be a public service announcement about the dangers of thrown eggs around Halloween. Mm-hmm. It was 0.07% of total cases admitted regarding eye injuries. Yeah. That seems a little extreme to me. I feel like that's like a broader impact. Ha <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if it's a tenth of a percent, Kind of, you know, 80-20 rule here. Let's shoot for the, the 20% of the things that cause 80% of the injuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which are probably things like, you know, I don't know, screwdrivers. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or fingers. Probably a lot of fingers. Yeah. You know, I have a two-year-old, so I may be biased towards <laughs> fingers and eyeballs. But <laughs> Though I was really confused. So there's a figure in here. That shows, it says a commercial brand of eggs. First of all, they're sold by the nine. Super weird. Strange for those of us in the U.S. Yeah. Um, But the label on it says Halloween fun. (laughs) (laughs) I think that maybe you should just, instead of a PSA, maybe you should just tell that company they should probably not do that. Yeah. (laughs) Seems, um, yeah. I feel like that's something, too, that if you advertise it, it's just going to go up, right? Right. Like, don't tell people this is a thing people do. Don't make it normal. (laughs) Right. Like, because it's not. It's not normal. Yeah. Also, I didn't know that there were ophthalmologists that worked in emergency rooms. I did not either. Um, Mm -hmm. They do say that their particular ER does not deal with child injuries, Mm -hmm. uh, so that they could have some underreporting here. Yeah. But they expect the younger community members to do much of the egg throwing, they say. (laughs) I think that's a terrible bias to put in that paper. You don't know how many senior citizens are out there throwing eggs at their kids. (laughs) Right. Maybe I'm speaking for my own mother here, but... (laughs) Hopefully she doesn't egg my house this Halloween. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. It's real weird. There's gross pictures or cool pictures, depending on. I think that stuff's cool. Of the... Well, there's a picture of the inside of the eye. It's yeah. not that gross. Yeah. Some people think that's gross. 
Yeah, I mean, I get these kind of pictures taken every year. We have a, a history of an ocular degenerative disease in my family, so they take these kinds of deep scans in my eye every year. Oh, nice. Okay. And it's always really interesting to look at, um, but sort of like having an MRI. Mm-hmm. Like, there's always something on it where it's like, oh, we need to watch that. <laughs> because if you look, there's always stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess as long as it's not the same stuff the next year is what you're looking for, right? Yeah, or as long as it's not changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my husband is a mechanic, right? And he does a lot of welding and all this stuff. And he's constantly getting like pieces of metal everywhere lodged in his body. And the best one was when he got one in his eye and he wears glasses and you know, that's, he wears safety glasses, but he got a piece in his eye and we went to the ER and I remember they put this dye in it and then they're looking at it in these sort of like UV goggles. And I'm just standing there and the doctor turns to me and he goes like, you want to look, don't you? <laughs> I'm like, yes, let me look. This is so cool. And my husband's like, can we just get this out of here? And the doctor's like, oh, look, you can tell where this is an old piece that got in there. And here's the new one. And here's some old scarring. It was so cool. <laughs> uh, one of my coworkers had a story about getting a piece of sand stuck in their eye and they couldn't get it out. And they used like a little dental drill. <gasps> They're like, hold very still. And they just flicked it out. Oh, with it. My gosh. I don't think I could be the person wielding that drill. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, when they did the stuff under my eyelid, that was enough eye things <laughs> <good>. for me. <laughs> oh, that's some crazy When they're like, stuff. do you want a mirror? I'm like, no, I, I don't. Uh, <laughs> Man, I always do. I'm that, I'm Steve Martin and, you know, um, little shop of horrors. I'm like, tell me what you're doing. This is super I mean, neat. <laughs> if it's someone else. I'm interested. Gotcha. I'll give you that. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, eye injuries are nothing to joke around with. So, you know, safety glasses, uh, not to necessarily promote this page. I have no association with them. Uh, but if you're still on Facebook, you know, if you're over 30. Uh, <laughs> That's everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a page called OSHA Is This Safe? <gasps> oh, no. Which is just various egregious safety violations that are happening on industrial sites. Oh, my uh, Lord. And, and some of them are some pretty interesting ocular issues. Oh, I know what I'm doing the rest of the night. Cool. Thanks. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that, that was a, a pretty good, fun paper find though i'm not sure the psas are going to be rolling out anytime soon no let's hope not although i'm gonna to have to give me some of those halloween fun eggs <laughs> yeah so if you would like to tell us how halloween egging eggs are marketed or what quantity they're sold in where you live or if this is even a problem where you live we would love to collect some data on this shannon how can <laughs> folks get a hold of us uh send us your data show at don't panic geocast.com um we're on twitter at don't panic geo i'm at shannon doolin john is at geo underscore lehman uh you can find us hanging out in the slack chat room we're on the software underground the don't panic channel and as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And we'll up the game one if you have the weirdest egg carton or if there's anything that we deem incredibly weird. Uh, we'll send out one of our friend Taylor Customs keychains to you. 
Ooh, I can't wait to get these emails. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> so until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 